that was kind of a pastiche of a few things that were, you know, had been sitting in the back of my mind. And then a pop chorus, a very pop chorus that I, where that came from, I don't, I don't know. Welcome to Champagne is also a band podcast. Today I have Mike Carpenter and you may know Mike Carpenter from episode 37 and way back today, when. Yeah, way yeah, back geez. when. Back back before the pandemic, just at the beginning of the pandemic. We're here actually today in this bonus episode to talk about the Decadence new album drop that dropped August 11th, Lost in Translation. So, Mike, welcome to the show. It's nice to be back. I was telling you when I, I came up to the studio, which even though it's been three years, it, it's or more than three years, I guess. It's just a nice, cozy environment. And it was much colder the first time I came here. It was <laughs> We had played great cover-up back in 2020. Uh-huh. Little did we know that that would be our last show for a year and a half. Came here that next afternoon and did one for... I think it was I'd Rather Be Lonely, which was a track from way yeah. back when. But no, it's nice to be back. I appreciate any opportunity to talk about the band and now the new music. Yeah, well, and now that triggered a question in my mind. So, since Fever Dreams dropped in August of 2020, you were already working on that new album. Is that correct? I, I guess the timeline works like this. Fever Dreams, which was our fourth album, and it came out during the pandemic. So, August 2020. And the story of that was I had went into demo things, I think, March 6th, 2020. Yeah. So, of course, a week later. All the plans we had to build that thing up as a band kind of went out the window. Right. So, it's this anomaly in that most of the tracks played on it, most of the instruments played on it are just me and they're the original demo versions I built on top of. Still really proud of it and everything, but we didn't have an opportunity to really flesh those songs out live. And when we got back together in 2021, it was just refreshing to, okay, start. let's start with the stuff we already know. It's like riding a bike, but it's a little trickier when you've been right. sidelined for 18 months. And uh, with this one, though, I think the process probably began in late 2021 or early 2022 it actually kind of started with this new amp i got sometimes it's the weirdest thing that gives you an inspiration to actually go to your studio spot and play right and i was having a really hard time getting any ideas on an acoustic which it's half and half sometimes that's where i start right because didn't you say you usually start with something on the acoustic and then build okay but but for this one it was i've always played marshalls i'm I'm kind of a, a brand whore when it comes to that and they have these code modeling amps and i know someone that's sonically better attuned than i am would say well you need a tube amp and i do love the warmth of a tube amp but with this code amp, it lets you plug in any sort of setting. You could, if you want to, you could sound like your favorite guitarist. But I was playing around with that, and just it, it, it was this weird kind of gateway to, okay, what sounds best when you have a one guitar band to play with? And that was the other primary difference of where we are now than we where we were in 2020. We're one guitar now, mm-hmm. and Mike, the other guitarist, is now bass. That was sort of the starting point of okay, what can I do guitar-wise that's going to fill the sound, knowing it's only going to be me? And that was how a lot of these tracks started. So that's interesting. I was going to point out that I thought that the guitar had something different. I don't know. I, it's it's funny that that was one of the first things that you brought up because I feel like the guitar throughout this album just sounds different. So I think that's... I don't know. I it's It's good to have the evolution of sound, right? So that you do build and make a different 
sound. Yeah, there there are variations for sure. And this one really took our time on. And it's not as if the tracks, you know, the difference between studio and live, there are certain tracks on this album that I'm not sure if we will be able to pull off live. Mm. And we'll get into some of the tracks later. But I mean, right. you know, some of them are so layered studio and that's okay. We don't need to know all 10 tracks and have them because we have enough of a repertoire where if we have five or six from this album, that's fine. Short of having a massive pedal board or an army of guitars or an army of amps, there are limitations to how many different sounds you can get. Whereas in Fever Dreams, a lot of them I was kind of plugging in with my multi-effects board that I've had for 12 years and still use. I didn't use that a whole lot on this. I was able to actually work with the amp. I had a primary sound that you hear throughout, but there were a lot of other guitar tracks that were secondary or tertiary that were trying some different tones. And then... Finding the tones like, all right, if I got left channel primary guitar here, how can I tweak that tone in the right channel so it's not just the same thing? In fact, it fills it up a little bit more. So that was a fun kind of thing to play with. One of the things that I'm curious about is when you started writing this, it lost in translation. I'm wondering when do you say, okay, it looks like I'm forming an album here, right? Like you have one or two songs or you make it to five songs, which may or may not end up on the album. But when do you start saying, I have an album here? Well, the first five tracks I knew were one, two, three, four, five. Huh? Side A. And, you know, we've never actually released a vinyl and we, we priced it out this time. It's just, we can't. Oh, no. <laughs> it, I, it's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so expensive unless you're you're ready to drop like 10 grand on a large scale. Yeah. It's just hard to it's hard enough to move merch, you know. And we we right. we're older, you know, we're mid 30s, I say older, but I mean, we don't gig as much as we used to, so it's also just uh okay, how many opportunities will we have to sell this? But the point to that is even in lieu of actually getting vinyls because that's kind of the the format I grew up on yeah. uh, from all the collection that my dad had i've always envisioned albums as a side a and a side b and and been very deliberate with track listing and i think i knew that we had an album that we were working towards when those first five tracks were demoed and mm. it was in order i it was basically one two three four five yeah. and it was even to the point where the last chord of each song at least through one tracks one through four i don't know actually one through five they all seamlessly go in so track one ends on an e track two begins on an e ends on an a track three begins on an a continues to another song in a for four which ends on a d and then track five starts on uh -huh. a d so the idea being you could listen to those first five and even though there's no segues or anything it is as seamless as we could make it from one song to the next and i thought there we go 20 yeah. minutes five tracks we have side a and then it was oh crap we got a whole other side to think of and that's hmm. why i think the huh. two halves of the album the second one is a bit more i want to say scattershot but i and i want to say less cohesive because that makes it sound a little bit like we were just kind of grasping it hmm. whatever but it's certainly very different than the first five yeah actually well and it's funny because when we talked about fever dreams we were talking about how really you think about how the overall album tells a story whether it's not necessarily a narrative story but yeah. just has the theme so that it seems as if you're having a beginning a middle and an end like a story whether it's narrative or not mm -hmm. this one i did feel that after track five there is i now i didn't time it but it does seem like that one has one of the longest pauses and i was like oh He's thinking of it in terms of like, okay, now go to the record player and flip it to side B. 100%. It's interesting to think that it started off with these five songs and then how did you, I mean, now we're speaking really generally, but how did you go from those five songs and then go into the last five songs and say, I want to keep with the theme? How did you maintain that theme? And, and we can go even into what you wanted the overall theme to this album to be. The theme was not really established. And we always start instrumental. Always. Mm. Uh, the lyrics come later. And that's part of the reason we sat on these tracks for about a year. The demos were done. Instrumental demos were done June 2022. They just sat there for the rest of 2022. I thought of maybe bits and pieces lyrically. If I thought of something, I'd jot it down. But it wasn't until January of this year 
mm-hmm. where I, I earnestly got towards, okay, what's the theme? What are the lyrical themes specifically? But after those first five tracks, then tracks six through 10, it was this hodgepodge of riffs we had messed around on in rehearsal and then trying to kind of flesh those out into full songs, riffs that had just been kind of sitting in the background. Track eight, which is the longest one we've ever done. Uh, Cinematic Dreams, which I, yeah. I don't think will we'd have to get a guest guitarist or something yeah. to actually oh, pull yeah. that off that was again it was sort of like a frankenstein of three different songs and we just kind of smacked them together and then track 10 was just like one afternoon okay i really want to book in this album with two rockers in e that are riff based but have a lot of space and I think if you listen to track one, Lost in Translation, and track 10, just another miscommunication, lyrically, there, there's a threat, of course, but also both of them have this slashing guitar riff and then space, mm-hmm. a lot of air. And part of the gateway into writing a lot of these songs, Fever Dreams is, you know, you, you need to take breaks every now and then because I don't want to say it's just noise. I think it's dynamic, but at the same time, there's always stuff going on. And I feel like with this album, we realize the benefit. I and mean, I've always loved the way guitars can slash through the mix. Mm-hmm. And they're that much more impactful if they're coming back in after a second where they aren't there, you know, right. as opposed to just, you know, like a drone. Right. Well, what's the opposite of a drone? Just like slash cut, you know, if you go back and listen to track 10 and it ends on an E and it gives them, you know, four seconds break, you know, flip that vinyl back over and you start with Lost in Translation. And then you see, oh, wow, there are very much similarities between these two songs. And I, I always like the idea of bookends on an album, even if we've never... As far as executing that, it's varied based on albums, but I do like bookends. And that actually even goes to, I don't know, I want to say like the behavior of people that before we had all the streaming services, etc., you might just have this one album that you listen to over and over and over just as, I mean, that would be your listening habit, right? So it makes sense to write an album in a way that you can continue to just keep flipping that and it tells the story over and over in, in a, a way cyclical, so, uh, yeah. yeah i mean there's a button on i i have apple music for my streaming and i don't know if spotify has the same one but you can of course shuffle but then there's also the one that's just the repeat play and it's right. like a circle arrow icon or something sure. like that so if someone happened to have that on and i don't usually think about it like that but the idea would be that track 10 ends and you go back to track one and it, it makes sense and you think oh that's kind of cool you know, and I'm trying to think of my favorite albums that kind of have that bookend quality to it. Led Zeppelin 4 would be not, you know, when the levee breaks ends. And if you listen to that really carefully, it ends. There's a rest. You flip the album over and then you hear Jimmy Page with that guitar warm up of Black Dog. Right. Pretty sure it's in the same chord, I think, in A. And also just this weird kind of studio effect that sounds like it could have just been an after effect from Levy, you know. Right. Well, the only other one that comes to mind almost immediately is Transatlanticism by death cab for okay, cutie because yeah. mm-hmm. there's that well and it's actually like the literal sound the yes I, I i'm kind of blanking right now but i just remember it was like kind of a hum repeated kind of sound that it begins with and then it, it ends at the end of the album it ends with that song uh, and that also sound. uh the wall right yeah uh, where we came in right is the first one that it ends with this is where so the idea mm-hmm. being side d that ends this is where i think that's what he says this is where we came in or something like that it's but, been a, it's been a while uh, you know the, as more and more music gets created it's harder and harder to keep track so yeah for sure let's dive in so you said that you wrote one through five kind of in a succession what made you choose the title track to be the first track on the album just because that's how it was written or just you know yeah I, or maybe even why you named the album based on the first track on the album. I think there's a pattern with our albums since the second one. And I remember Smile Politely did a review of Elegantly Wasted where they said they should have started the album with I'd Rather Be Lonely, which is track two. And I don't mean this, uh, this is a terrible metaphor, it's sophomoric of me to say, but it's like, don't blow your load on track one. Don't do it. And Lost in Trans, that's not to say track ones aren't great. I I do love a good opener and I view it more as a table setter. I don't want the peak to be track one for sure. Right. Well, and you you want to kind of ramp up to it or else it's just like, then it makes track two a disappointment, right? Not not that it is a disappointment, but that it could feel like a disappointment. Absolutely. So um, in the case of this, Lost in Translation track one 
is one of those songs where we really play with space. From the very get-go, it's a simple drum pattern at the beginning, but then each and every time through, Ben is adding one new element. And it's just a guitar on the left channel. Just an octave riff, and that's it. Then, after, you know, what is that, eight or 16 bars of it, when everybody comes crashing in, and now you got guitars on the left and right channel, I think it really pops you know right it introduces i guess you mentioned the lyrical or the theme right and it kind of introduces that from the start you know we're kind of past writing romantic angst some of the greatest music ever comes from that and i love angry yeah. romantics when they get all the best music of, of my favorite artists is usually when they're miserable we aren't you know we're like in our mid-30s we got day jobs we play a gig a month or six weeks you know we have no delusions about like we're the angry young rockers anymore so what is something that's all we're all kind of feeling and lost in translation and many of the tracks in the album are dealing with the fact that communication you would think with all the modes of communication we have now it would get easier but in fact it's gotten more difficult it's just difficult to really convey what you're thinking without somehow getting misconstrued or or misunderstood. And that can be on a personal level, that can be on a social network level, whatever. But I started with that so I knew that I wouldn't go in falling back on thematic things I'd already touched on. Earlier albums dealt with romantic angst and then Fever Dreams dealt, I mean, that was just a product of COVID. And just being at home and just paranoia and just the isolated feeling that one gets with that. I hope when I write lyrics, I try to take a page from like a Tom Petty almost where they are not too vague, but also not too specific, meaning that someone could listen to it and transpose it to something that they've experienced that has nothing to do with where I was coming from when I wrote it. That's the first track. It's a table setter. We've been playing it live. It's coming off good live as well. I think from a mixing perspective too, with all that space, it really allowed for it to pop. Like if you if you crank your car speakers, when everything comes in 15, 16 seconds in, it's like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. It's a, I just like it. It's a nice little, hey, how you doing? We're back, you know. Leading into that, I wanted to also talk about the second track, The Real Thing, and and feel free to correct me and I can even remove this later, but I, I don't know why, but this hits me, that intro hits me as like, I don't like the way I'm going to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway, is like an homage to Led Zeppelin a little bit. There's sure. like a Led Zeppelin, like some, when I heard that, I was like, my brain hmm. automatically transported to kind of an, an intro with Led Zeppelin. And I didn't know if that was kind of a hat tip or anything, but maybe it sounds like it wasn't. It but was I to just, another one. It was oh. to another one of my favorites, which we oh. never really done an ACDC song, but that's what, that's what I was coming oh, from. Oh, sh- okay, yeah. yeah. And, no, and not so, and that. the riff, but also the, you know, like this sort of chug-a-lug, chug-a-lug, chug-a-lug. That one, again, who... I mean, that that's almost like immigrant song right there. Yeah, sure. It's like, because... That's a faster chug. Oh, right. Sorry, yeah. But this one, but this one though, back to the idea with space. Rest. Guitar is, it's it's there, it's present. Uh, There's a lot of it in the mix for sure, but also letting it breathe. Like I I even told Ben, I was like, Phil Rudd, ACDC. That's what you want. You want that Phil Rudd, one of my favorite drummers ever. Mike on the bass, just chug a look. The the simplicity of that. And then what I loved is when me and Mike were doing vocals for it, we got to go for the big chorus. Robert Mutt Lang, what he really did well with ACDC when he got there with Highway to Hell. And my favorite ACD, ACDC album is Powerage, which is right before Highway mm. to Hell. And it's got Sin City. It's got Up to My Neck and You. It's just one of the most balls-to-the-wall rock albums ever. But what they were still lacking, at least in the mix, was the huge choruses. Like the really big choruses mm. with backing vocals all over. And Mike, I think, triple-tracked his backing vocals. It was so fun to piece that together because we've never really focused on that. But that song doesn't hit if you don't have a big chorus. And we were just going for unapologetically big arena rock kind of thing. This is not specific to this song, but it triggered a thought uh, that I wanted to ask you earlier. Well, or sometime in this interview, I was thinking about how this was all recorded in your house, in your studio. I got the sense that because the only time that you were paying for was your own time, right? Like you were, you were only responsible for the amount of time that you had to take 
in recording it. So I feel like you had the opportunity to do that extra take or make like certain details pop in this album. Maybe I'm just not remembering correctly your other albums, but this has some more subtleties, but maybe Mm -hmm. that's talking about that space, but also the back backing vocals. You really had an opportunity to bring in some multi-chordal kind of chorus kind of sound, Mm -hmm. which I, I don't remember that as, as and maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, no, it never but. was an emphasis, and, and to our detriment in a way, because Mike is such a good vocalist, hmm. and the way our, our voices mix together, I've, al- I've always really enjoyed it, and this time it was like, well, why wouldn't we? Like you said, I, I think in the past, Fever Dreams, it was just difficult coordinating that time when, or is there a lockdown, or is there not a hell, I don't know. Right. Oh, I'll just do, I'll do as much as I can, and then we'll bring in what, what I can with those guys, but... No, with the early albums, it was more like a race against time. We have eight hours booked. How much can we do in those eight hours? What little can I do with my mixer and my home computer to augment that? And that that's not a concern anymore. Yeah, so I think that's absolutely accurate. And with this one, you know, listen, I don't have a video game system or anything. Like if you're talking what recreation would I do after work and after dinner and it's seven o'clock and we aren't going to watch a, a TV show until eight. Well, I'll... Just pop down the basement. I'll tweak this track a little bit and then get a sound I really like and and then formulate new ideas. And then, yeah, I think there's absolutely something to that. I want to kind of jump forward a little bit to the song Kicking Around, which for some reason, it stands out to me as a different song on this album. Mm-hmm. You're almost bringing in elements of funk. One of the things that stands out to me is some of the really intricate rhythms that are happening in the drum part. I spent listening to this one track just trying to focus only on the drums. Yeah, and it's, it, and it's, it's nuts. You know, there's something about when a person can play an intricate drum part, but doesn't overstep their bounds in a way that drowns out the other elements. One of the things that, that, that does that often is, is the guitar, but I feel like in this song, they weave in and out of each other in mm-hmm. such a great way. One of the things that I noticed, and, and this is now back to the whole broader picture, I want to say that syncopated cymbal that's happening in there almost you almost want to say it's like that disco kind of sound. And disco I don't with remember. almost like a Toto Rosanna. <laughs> You know, you're right. The, yeah, the syncopation, the ghost notes that he's playing. Here's how it would work. So he came over 10 times. Each time was one huh. track. He'd listen to it at home. I, when I did the demo drum tracks, it was just basically keep the beat so I can build other right. things around it. And I played to a click. So that way it would be easier to edit and mix. We basically went in order. So when we got to that song and he launches into his, I was like, oh my God, that's, you know, because the original drum part was very much a disco four on the floor huh. kind of thing going on. But then he's doing all the syncopation that really livened it up. And for him, I don't want to say effortless because I know he's playing, he's really focused when Ben's playing those parts like that, but it kind of is. I mean, he's just so fundamentally sound. The rudimentary stuff that separates the great drummers from the merely good ones, like that's what he's so skilled at is just... Hmm. You know, like I, I, I hold sticks like a like an animal, animal from Muppets, and I just kind of bash around, and I'm okay to groove. What he can do is just so beyond that. So I'm curious about what the inspiration behind this song specifically was, and then how it kind of fits in with the theme. I guess we didn't yeah. really talk about specifically what the theme is, but I well, mean, the theme, we, yeah. the theme back to the idea of like. Oh, I guess we did. Well, yeah. starting with the community, but here's the thing: it, it's not certainly not a concept album because they're tracks are dealing with different things and kicking around lyrically is a bit more to do with something I did on Fever Dreams. There was this track called Face in the Crowd, Mm. which was about a friend who ultimately committed suicide. And he was one of the, and it's a classic case of, you know, you're a young adult, you're trying to find your way in the world, you're trying on different hats, you're trying to figure out just who the hell am I? And some just never find that. And it's just like an existential struggle for them. That was what that song was about. This was just about the general feeling that you get at a certain age where, is this all there is? Am I actually challenging myself to do anything different? Or am I just in the case of the song kicking around? Am I just doing the same crap Hmm. over and over? And musically though, the kicking around chorus, which is more spoken than sung, you know, it's more just like a mantra. Hmm. 
But that song, again, was all just, okay, I found this one A chord. Instead of a barred A chord where you're on the second fret, I just moved it up to the fifth to give it a little funk and did almost a Keith Richards-y kind of, you know, let the space, let it ring out. Yeah. And then go up to a D and then just, that that's it. I mean, there's a couple chord changes, but it's basically just A to D, A to D. And really trying to do an exercise and can we build the song more around rhythm than chord changes? Because I... Mm. Sometimes I listen to music and what can drive me crazy is when it's overcooked and when there's too many changes for the sake of changes. Hmm. And if you really think about the songs that can be the most effective, I think simplicity and not doing too much. And if you do add different colors, why not let that come from the musicians playing it more so than, you know, the pre-written stuff that you came up with on your own? Like, why not let the bassist add colors with the fills that he plays right. and the drummer add it with whatever symbols he elects to use during the verse or the chorus as opposed to hey guys let's change five chords just because we can so that one i i love the simplicity of it i love the groove that we were able to accomplish with it and it really kind of took on a cool new twist when ben added like you said that syncopation mm-hmm. it was much more of a disco four on the floor still has some four on the floor to it now and then the outro, we had some fun with the vocals. Right. Well, I was that that was the one thing that really stood out to me is the ooze and... The falsettos. Yeah. And the, yeah. I, by the end of it, there was like six voices going on. That's We're trying right. to figure out, you know, how can we play that live? We played it live before and we can't decide, do we just jam out? It's trickier than I thought. And this is one difficulty in doing a studio album before you really rehearse the songs through as a band. Meaning, how do you transpose it from a studio song to a live song? And uh, we're trying to figure out, like, how can we do something resembling that vocal thing live while still hitting me and Mike on bass, while still hitting our chords? Right. Because eventually there's all these different disparate parts coming in. But uh, yeah, that's that's a fun one. And I think that one crackles. It's fun in a way, even though lyrically it's sort of about being stuck and Mm. not really sure where you're going jumping from kicking around which is the fourth track the final track on that side track five i don't want to maybe jarring isn't the right word but there is that's okay there's that pause but it's just like it it, it's a gut punch in a way the beginning of i know what you're talking about that really gritty synth and that's a guitar oh it is it's uh and and that song literally started i'm playing around with these different tones and i found this crunchy tone and there was this great tremolo, but a slow oh. tremolo. I went down to drop D to just, and for in our case, it's drop C sharp because we play half step down. And I just hit a drop C sharp chord and let it ring. And then boom, 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 boom. And I found, okay, if I give it a little more gain, it lingers and it's just fading right as the drums click in. Oh. Tribal, dark, again, simple. I mean, there are really no, it's D. The whole way through. There's Mm. variations of a riff on D, but there's not any chord changes in it. And uh, we just played it for the first time this past weekend. And I don't want to like speak hyperbolically, but it used to be someone said, what song, if you're starting on Decadence, what song? And I'd probably say I'd rather be lonely because it's just a nice little gateway. It's a good rock song. But this one, I'm like, oh, I I think this is my favorite thing we've ever done. I, I just love, I mean, crank it. And just let it, I, I, I like I like how you said jarring. That was the goal, is to go from this funk to this like death, not death metal, but like, you know, right. a death drone, right. kind of a, just a, a dark march through this, you know. And it feels like that also loops back to even, I know it's not, obviously not the same chord, like you prefer to have them line up, but it definitely jumps back into the idea of, miscommunication yeah. and, and communicating with others and so like back to the lost in translation circle even even on that side i i, I guess that's all i really wanted to say about that but well and uh, i will say the jarring yeah. thing we tried to smooth that over we ended kicking around on that d it's a abrupt d yeah and then there's like three or four seconds and then the low d comes in for i know what you're talking about so we tried to smooth that over but listening to it i gave it the road test meaning you know when we submitted it for distribution and now it's ready for the streaming services and everything i took a trip to chicago and right as i hit kankakee i was like let's try it it's a 45 minute album let's try it now and then it'll time out as we're kind of getting into the city 
And I was like, yes, it passed the driving test. But my favorite part was track five, especially turned up to 11 because it just, there's a darkness to that song that I really like how it turned out. That one's about relationships. No, I mean, I can say some things are vague, but that's just about the fact that even sometimes the person that you're closest to, there's just this weird struggle in, in figuring out, oh my God, what do they think and what are they feeling? And just the insecurities and everything that comes with that. So you can transpose that on a relationship if you want. It would make sense. In that way. Now we've gotten to the point where you you flip the album to the B side and in the distance comes up. Was that more of a jarring thing to go from I know what you're talking about and oh. then to the tracks? Longer yeah. break, longer rest between right, the there two. Right, there's a more there's definitely that longer break. Honestly, it's not sticking out in my head as okay. extra. But the thing is is that I feel they match each other pretty well, like in terms of intensity, but I also feel like in the distance, the chords that you're using, it feels like you're modulating all over the place in terms of, you know, oh, we're in this key. Oh, we're we're jumping over kind of briefly into this key and then we're back. And then it, it gives a little bit more of a sense of movement, separation. Almost. Okay. Maybe movement, but, yeah. but even just uh, meandering maybe, yeah. you know, like metaphorically, you're not really settling down on a key, right? So yeah. it gives you that feel of where is this going? Mm-hmm. Part of that, I think it's got a very driving beat to it. So it got kind of a spin, is it spindly or spindly or I don't know, like just kind of the riff itself, the guitar riff. Meanwhile, the drums and the bass are just kind of rooting it down in an E. Mm. But there are some chord changes that we elected in that, as opposed to an E to an A or an E to a B. What about an E to a B flat? And then it has this weird dissonance to it. The abrupt kind of halftime guitar solo break in the middle of it. And then right back to the more driving beat. That one was a very like, okay, we can afford just kind of a unapologetic driving rock song. That was one that we had been rehearsing together and i thought it's always nice to start a side b with something that punches a little bit yeah, so sure. yeah sure. lyrically that was tough though and i don't know if i'm i look at that lyric as anything great i thought it's fine it serves the song the way that riff is played i had to figure out a vocal pattern that i could actually play in when we play it live which we will just figuring out how could i actually there's this but i didn't want to just be singing along with that same rhythm so once i figured out okay what rhythm i actually was practicing when writing those lyrics i had an acoustic playing what i had played on the track and then figured out okay this is something i could sing on top of it but that took for freaking ever at a certain point you just want to get it done right and that was one of those where we're happy with it but it was also okay are we done with the lyrics we're done with the vocals good let's move on it's just interesting you know there there was a solid five songs to begin with and then you have your b-side and you you begin with the the song that right now you're saying is kind of just just get it done yeah you know, I- <laughs> i'm excited to play it live and ultimately i think it ended up with a, pr- a pretty good chorus and it's got some good backing vocals in there and it's just a fun rock song i think sometimes it's like the first five tracks were so deliberately planned that i don't mind side b hypothetically speaking i suppose because it's not coming out on vinyl but regardless like that it starts on something that's a little in its way wider and what i mean by that is it's not a song that takes itself too seriously i at least i didn't feel that way when i was writing it and in a way it's kind of like a throwback to a almost like a motley crew 80s song it's i mean i will say the intro that we did on that when we got done with it i was like "Ah, it's kind of a little kickstart my heart kind of thing there's this guitar that Uh, kind of goes from the right to the left channel mimicking you know something moving i got down with that and i was like i think it's kind of an 80s rock pastiche but i love 80s rock when the mood is right and it's yeah it's certainly in contrast to the first five tracks though i'm gonna go ahead and skip to i want to just say like the anthem the centerpiece the maybe uh the cinematic dreams okay yeah so i so was that that was that what you were thinking when i said yeah, that or, yeah oh, okay, i mean okay. i will say that i think <laughs> if there is a lull in the album it would probably and i want to say lull, but track six and seven in a weird way feel like standalone kind of mm. i think like the last three tracks we're getting back into oh now we're going from track to track and even the deliberate way that cinematic dreams is in b and the next track uh, vanishing point is in b but ends in E and then tr- track 10 isn't a song in E. So like you could listen to those last three songs just as you could the first five. And if you just kind of notice how one song either ends abruptly or fades 
one chord into the next song like there's there's yeah. much more of a uniformity uh, or I sh- a cohesion i should say between those three between cinematic dreams and then vanishing point those feel like they belong together mm-hmm. you yep. know and that was intentional um, and it uh, certainly you got cinematic dreams which is seven minutes and change yeah and then vanishing points three uh, three minutes and 20 seconds nice sure. short little rock riff yeah. you know that was certainly it as well because you didn't want to follow up the longer track that's a lot to take in with something that was okay like give me give me something a palate cleanser if you will but yeah well but they also have some nice clean guitar in there and i like the cinematic dreams feels bluesy mm-hmm. it has it has like a very deep sense of a blues song i, well, I don't know what it is like it I, just, i'll tell you what it, it is oh. i didn't realize it either first and uh, the good thing about blues is are you really ripping it if it's been done a million times i don't know but i showed the demo to mike and he's like oh yeah born under a bad sign albert king i'm like ah oh, damn because the the opening baseline has a lot of similarities. And I'm not going to do the thing like uh, Vanilla Ice did when he said, hey, Ice Ice Baby, it's completely different from Under Pressure. Oh, yeah. Because we have the extra dun, 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 da, 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 da. I'm not going to do that. I will say that that was one of those, oh, crap, that's where that, you know, these certain things that kind of enter your your subconscious and you're like, well, that can just be a baseline. It's a standard baseline, just like how Paul McCartney does walking baselines. Or uh, not walking so much as like, he kind of does the box bass lines where he's just, just got his finger on the root note and he's playing the third and the fifth and the octave. Oh, right. Lot, like paperback writer. Okay, we got a song in B and I know what the boom mm, 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 and the funk chords on top of that. But yeah, definitely bluesy. Thank you, Albert King, for the bass line. But then a complete left turn of the chorus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How would you describe the chorus? I because I was trying to think of good words and then I just gave up because it it's one of those things that's on the tip of my tongue or I know it but I just can't put it into right words. But widescreen. Here's how I view that song because if you listen to Cinematic Dreams, so many things are layered on it. And by the way, when I gave it the title, I'm like, if you're gonna give it some lofty title like that, it better not suck. Right. It better be cinematic. I mean, you better make it big. And this is one where it's unapologetically four or five different tracks that are just little guitar bits and pieces or, you know, a lot of harmonics and things like that to give it a sort of nighttime spatial hmm. feel during the verse, especially. And then this chorus hits and it's like multicolored widescreen, like, ah, you know, the skies okay. open up and then you see a little bit of sunshine or whatever, like, Meta- visual metaphor you want to put to it and then it goes right back into the nighttime spatial verse it also has one of my favorite you know lyrics in there is the it, and hopefully i got this right because okay. yeah you, you didn't send me a lyric sheet but i just kind of guessed away it is shadows that we make in life cinematic dreams in black and white did i get that right i, uh, I kept hearing the shadows, shadows 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 that remain in light oh oh okay but how what did you think it was <laughs> i thought it was shadows we make in life i mean either one works yeah but I, well and it and i thought it was just such a kind of a strange twist on shadows we make on life like our impact or our even our like the things that we leave behind but like shadows they just kind of disappear well i like that and and what was the line again shadows that remain in light which is also a nod to the talking Uh heads which also we nod to the talking heads and lost in translation when we say speaking in tongues so those are two talking head albums in the lyrics but remain in light the idea with that is if a shadow remains in light it's like no matter no matter how much you try to reconcile with something, it's you might, whether it be pain, anguish, like you're never going to fully get over it. But Cinematic Dreams, boy, I'm trying to think of the chorus now, now that you mentioned it, because there are a couple variations of it, but silhouettes in black and white, uh, shadows that remain in light. It's sad. I need to look at my own lyrics. I mean, we, <laughs> I mean if we, you were singing it, you'd remember it, right? So. Yeah, uh, I got them right here. Sorry about that. No worries. Well, it, and it's funny, too, because I, I think I mentioned this, but this is not one that I, I don't know how we would do it live. Right. And that's okay. I mean... Guest performers, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Yeah, silhouette appearing, shadows that remain in light, cinematic dreams in black and white. They're only moving pictures, just figments from another time, cinematic dreams in black and white. Yeah. I really appreciated and then even you added onto all of that the icing on the cake is that you have this big 
outro. Jam. Anyway, so our only jam, right. really, that we've ever. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I didn't get get the sense that it was more like open, but it there's some really cool again really cool rhythmic things happening the guitar is playing some very it's like an interesting part the drum actually like settles into a nice spot yeah so it goes right into the pocket so that you can make some more rhythmic embellishments i guess you could yeah, say yeah and the and, cool thing is like you mentioned the guitar parts definitely funk chords throughout the verses in the outro and there's also one track that for all seven minutes i think it's left channel but you know if you listen to it there's a and that's, that's, huh. the, that's the only track because once i figured out the delay timing that i wanted that fit way down the drum track as a demo and then i got the delay queued up so it could be like i did a seven minute take of just and just on and on so that that's something that along with a tambourine and a shaker that are going on right. to really propel the rhythm that's something to help with it huh. too but and then this uh really cool kind of I don't know, 70s bluesy tone for the solo on the outro that has this like perpetual wah kind yeah, of effect oh, that's going right. on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 on one of the other listings, I was like, oh yeah, and then there's wah. For the wah, was that an automatic wah or were you? Yeah, it was an automatic oh, wah okay. that was with that setting, yeah. Okay. Uh, it just added, it's, what was it? <clears throat> one of these settings on the amp that, I think it's called 70s blues. And uh, it reminds me a little bit of some of, uh, if you go to a record store, sometimes you can get these really cheap, I already mentioned Albert King and he's one of them, but like even a a BB King studio album from the seventies for like three bucks. Yeah. I don't know why they're so cheap. Some of them are fantastic. Maybe more of a Johnny Winter. I I don't know where it's necessarily derived from, but I, I heard that and I was looking for a solo that I didn't want the solo to be some shredding really stand out on top. I wanted it to sort of sit in the pocket. I I can't shred. So I I really had to think, okay, for these four measures, what am I playing? And for the next four measures, what am I playing? And that was a very deliberate process of, okay, well, what's the bass doing underneath? And are the rhythm parts starting to ascend a little bit? Are they going a little bit higher or hitting Mm. some different kind of colors? But I really love how that song turned out. Like I said, it's kind of a Frankenstein. There's a middle bridge, instrumental bridge with a lot of space that Hmm. I don't know if that turned out exactly like we wanted. And I was trying to think, does it need more? But I thought, yeah, there's enough cooks in the kitchen. Let it sit. We were thinking about adding brass to that part. I can see that. Maybe we should have. I don't know. But And honestly, since we know we probably won't play it live, why not? What I really like the most about that is somehow I think that the chorus which is very pop and very widescreen, actually fits. Yeah. And that when it goes back to the verse, it's not jarring so much as like, and we're back. I can imagine like a nighttime drive through Chicago or something like that, you know? Sure. And, and just, I'm, I'm seeing sparkling lights. And there's a lot of guitar low flourishes that kind of allude to a dreamlike celestial kind of thing going on. Well, and so the celestial thing going on, we lead into vanishing point and i said that those two really fit together mm-hmm. and i feel like i wrote down i said it doesn't break the glow so like there's mm. kind of a there's a sense of i don't know the the, the music or the the warmth or whatever from cinematic dreams yeah. that uh doesn't it doesn't just dissipate it gets sustained by vanishing point mm-hmm. which is there any reference to the movie vanishing point or is there <laughs> Yeah, that's a great <laughs> okay. question. I, I mean, was wondering. Because that title, there, there's some sort of concept about A Vanishing Point, which I read on, not the movie itself, but that movie was named after some concept of almost like a horizon. Like, right. uh, and A Vanishing Point is just simply where, you know, you can no longer see something. And the Wikipedia article gets much more in depth with it. That's like my nighttime reading. Right. So it's kind of funny. You, you take these mental notes of, oh, I like those two words together. It used to be where sometimes for titles and i never ended up using one i don't think but like i'd look up old film noir titles and think god that'd that'd be a really good song title but never really get around to using it you know (laughs) this song lyrically is much more of a fever dreams-esque kind of thing where it's i mean this is like autobiographical like this is about a past relationship kind of thing and these visions that you cannot shake what I love about that song, the riff, the chorus riff, the main riff is very decadence. It's just like, oh, well, that's 
very much a decadent song well you know right. when we're five studio albums into it and it, it just kind of came out very seamlessly but also there's a bridge which i try to achieve a choral effect almost a lot of backing vocals all at once and me and mike worked on that that says all your dreams are vanishing into another place and it just repeats that four times and uh, just the idea that when you're younger that you experience this a lot more where the things that you really 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 want at when you're 20 23 25 or whatever you don't get them it's just absolutely crushing Hmm. at that age and that even when you look back in hindsight there's certain images back to the vanishing point thing that god dang they just stick with you the verses are totally images that really stand out well and i was also thinking about maybe you said this in in a different way it's like like and then those things when we're in 2025 whatever that we really really want and then they're crushing it's like the farther that you get away from it in much the same way as like uh, the passage of time the more those things kind of start to go away you know the things yeah. that we really worried about at the time were serious but also now feel kind of ridiculous right that, for and sure that's, and that's maybe part of the thing that you can't shake too is like how did i that, let myself get that wrapped up in it yeah yeah, yeah. well uh, and I've, i don't know about you but like i've always been very into dreams i mean named an album after it for god's sake but like the second verse i want to say in that song the, the verses wrote themselves because i was just like okay in my dreams you floated slowly fading out of sight a lazy river took you into the horizon and i remember distinctly i was like 19 and a relationship had ended or something and i i wake up and i'm like visibly shaken Mm. and i go out my roommate still my best friend to this day but you know i I tell him this is the dream i had like this this girl like Mm. i mean literally on a lazy river i was like and it kind of pissed me off how literal I mean, metaphorical, I know, but like Mm -hmm. just the most heavy handed metaphor appeared in my dreams of, oh, they're vanishing. You can't quite reach them. They're literally going down a lazy river and I'm like on the dock as I just see them slowly going by and they don't notice me. And it's like, ah, crap. Well, what does that mean? Well, you know, and and the fact that when I got to these verses, whether it be the first verse where it's about this nighttime experience where it's like a messenger approaches with hopes of broaching one last time, promises like embers in the fire, the smoke around your face shrouds the sadness in your eyes, and an enigmatic face tells captivating lies. That happened. I was 21 years old, streets of Chicago. You just know this is, it's the end of it. It's the end of whatever this thing is. Right. And I just said, okay, well, let's just get it out. I had spent eight tracks not broaching deliberate, like romantic things from the past autobiographical right. stuff i wanted to keep it things that were personal to me but not right in too personal of a way where others couldn't transpose what they wanted to on it but then track nine got to the verse and it was just like okay here are two distinct images that actually fortunately have long since vanished in terms of their relevance on me but they were really impactful at the time this leads into the final track of the album miscommunication or parenthetical, parenthetical. just another <laughs> Satisfaction. I can't get no. I don't know if we had done a parenthetical title before. I like him though. It's a yeah. fun rock trope. Why is that? Just so that it doesn't get confused with another song? I don't know. Maybe, I mean, I like, I did look up to see. I always try to make sure that we aren't ripping. Like I remember when I wrote "I'd Rather Be Lonely," and I was like, there has to be a song with that title. And I would Google it, and there was nothing of any like mainstream artist so i said i think we're probably good you know yeah and i don't think there's any laws against i mean there was plenty of songs that you know yeah i think you can't copyright a song title i don't think so because yeah. there's i mean there's certain times where i'll look up lyrics from one of my favorite artists and then i find out oh wow there's some morgan wallen song with that same time like i don't know that one yet that's the yeah. one that pops up on google but yeah so just another parenthetical miscommunication that was the 10th track on the album it was the last one we recorded and it was like well we need one more and it just it's the simplest of riffs i mean it's just but then the real key was the verses we wanted something like sexy for the verses and it's got this low and kind of a whispered voice um, I was listening to, you know, it's funny because U2 can understandably get crapped on, but I think 90s U2 is just out of this world. And I think Pop is criminally an underrated album from 1997. And Bono was having a lot of vocal issues, so he would whisper a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, he and uh, Do You Feel Loved or If You Wear That Velvet Dress, he would whisper the verses. 
And, and I was like, God, that's pretty effective. We've never really done a whispery kind of verse before. Huh. And then we got to the chorus and I knew just another miscommunication. And then we started layering vocals on it. And then pretty soon I was like, holy crap. This is my, the first time my in excess new sensation kind of love is finally yeah. coming through in a chorus. Because if you listen to the high harmony that Mike does, we came up with it and then we listened back to it. I was like, holy crap. I was like, I love in excess. Love the album Kick. Who didn't back in like right. 1988? It was, they were the b second biggest band in the world for a time. And that was like, oh, we got a cool pop hook within this rock song. That's very Michael Hutchins, you know? So that was kind of a pastiche of a few things that were, you know, had been set in the back of my mind. And then a pop chorus, a very pop chorus that I, where that came from, I don't, I don't know. Where does Decadence come up with the album covers? And there's a particular feel to them. Yeah. It's always a sense of like the, the old timey or historical photo yeah. in a in a weird way. I'm guessing that this was an old timey or historical yeah. photo. And don't let me over characterize, yeah. but are all of the albums like historical photos? Except the first one. The first one was a, f a friend of the band and she's still a model up in Chicago, but like I, <laughs> this is pre like good iPhone camera. So I actually borrowed my parents' digital camera and we did a photo session in my basement and I was like, well, you know, we're a rock band. We want a sexy girl smoking a cigarette. That's the album cover. And yeah. that's exactly what we did. So we're in my basement and the smell of cigarette smoke lingered for like, you know, two weeks after that. But we got a good shot and I knew I wanted it to be black and white and no name on the cover. You know, not quite oh, Spinal yeah. Tap smell the glove, but, you know, like completely black. <laughs> Uh, how much more black can it get? None, none more, none more. None more. That was very much a like, hey, you know, we got this name decadence. How can we play around with that? We want to be, we want to be dangerous. The funny thing is, and I was telling Derek from Small Politely this, he was like, he was following up on, well, why the band name? Honestly, I, when we chose it, it's like, well, maybe we'll grow into the image of being decadent individuals, you know? The ones that I read about in all my Led Zeppelin biographies and all that. Wouldn't that be fun? That was a conscious choice for the first album and the second album, which the YouTube took off because it shows two kids smoking and drinking, and apparently that's against some child safety regulations on YouTube. So they removed any semblance oh. of that album cover, which is fine. I understand it. In fact, my niece saw the album cover. She's like, why are they why are they smoking i'm like or why is that your album cover and i'm like well, where do i begin like we wanted to, i don't know we want to be transgressive i don't know i just like the image so that was the first image a found image we find these like non-copyright images and sometimes reddit these old subreddits they have one called history porn old school cool for me i started doing these searches for okay i knew it was lost in translation i looked up wires I was like, okay, because essentially communication, whether it's what's going on in your brain or whatever, we're, we're feeding information through these channels, right? And if I type in wires, maybe I'll get something. I, I got a few. I got like a telephone wire with a bajillion lines going through it. But then there was this image of a lady working an IBM computer in the 1950s. It was black and white. The Fever Dreams album cover was black and white. The first one's black and white. Everything in between is like neutral colors galore. And we wanted color because right. I do think that this is a cult as far as the, the sonic palette. It's a colorful album. Let's liven it up a bit. Finally, and found this almost like Norman Rockwell esque color scheme to it. Right. I love doing the album covers. We aren't talented enough to paint something on our own or get hypnosis to there's a new documentary about hypnosis and all the album covers they made. Actually, they were the ones that did Dark Side of the Moon and all the Zeppelin stuff. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Storm Thurgeson was their big album cover guy, but was, um, that just came out a week or two ago. But short of that, we got to kind of borrow. And uh, hey, if we ever got super popular and came up upon some copyright thing, we'll deal with it then. But I figure th they'll leave us alone until that moment. But again, I try to be careful and check that they're either public domain or that the date that they were published is, you know, past a certain. I'm no copyright right. expert, but I, I think that we're within the bounds of that or fair use or whatever you want to say. So. Right, right, right. I think Kicking Around and Cinematic Dreams are probably my favorites on the album. Just, cool. Which are, are interesting because they're kind of, they're, that you could almost like lay, lay the album, you know, flat on itself and those two would like line up as, as tracks, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. um, 
which is interesting but i'm kind of curious what is your favorite song on this album i like that you picked those two because i think it did see us kind of going outside of our comfort zone and and at least especially rhythmically doing things we hadn't really done before i always go back to i know what you're talking about i love the way the mix turned out on that the sort of ominous stomp to the rhythm you know i work at a middle school and i i went to our band director right before spring break and i said hey we we got this one track and me and the drummer we've been listening to you know we're trying to think of some cool percussive things we can add to it do you have an anvil and she was like no i got a break drum and i was like oh break drum that's the ding that's the ding so uh-huh. that over spring break i took the break drum and oh my god what do you call the it's at the start of each verse you hear it in like western soundtracks like like the oh my god it's gonna kill me and now i don't know but it's got the ball on one end and it's got a like it's uh oh uh oh darn it oh yes now i i totally picture it's it gonna it's kill got me. basically like a cowbell that has a a cowbell with a ball on the end of it and it does a little shake-shake thing. I'm going to look it up yeah. real quick. Most common per- percussion, auxiliary percussion, and we'll find out what it is. But yeah, uh, I basically borrowed for a night. I borrowed two things from the band room and I brought it back and I was like, it worked out perfectly. The break drum experimented. Okay, where do you hit it to get the, you know, really anvil kind of sound? And uh, I the idea behind the rhythm with that was like a train. Oh, okay. We're just, I don't know, that, that yeah. you could, I just felt train for that, something very industrial. And Ben came up with the original drum part with which we built everything around. And that one is what I go back to just for the sheer heaviness. Like, I, I feel like it, it came out so naturally in writing it. And every idea we had for it, nothing seemed superfluous. It all seemed like, yep, that's that's exactly I look at that finished product and I say, there's not a thing I would touch on mm. that. And I, I, I'm proud of the album that for most tracks, I feel that way. And that I, I wouldn't say there's regrets for how any track turned out that we cooked it just the right amount and uh, holding it any longer, trying to add stuff, it would have just been unnecessary. I think it's where it should be, which is what how you want to feel when, when you're all done with it. And you're still looking up with that. Well, let's see here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we will find, oh, here we go. A list. Okay from a music store so this will show us the most common i know i've heard it before and of course it it doesn't help that it's i don't think it's a common type name woodblocks castanets no vibra slap that's oh it's a vibra you mean the thing that it does it's like literally it's literally the name of what it does (laughs) you slap it and it vibrates and what's funny is i got those and i texted ben i was like i got them i'm gonna try to lay them down and I got to return them to the band room, but I'll at least have the sound. So if we got to move them around the mix, we can. And he came in to record another track. And I said, let me show you. I know what you're talking about first. Right. And I showed him and he like started laughing. He's like, that's it. He's like, that's exactly where I would have put those. Vibra slaps on the one in the verses. You got the the two and four um, during the main riff for the break drum, which is like the anvil. The key with that song is it has this extended break where it goes back to that and we come back in and that last chorus had to hit hard. Like at that point, four minutes in, it's got to hit hard. Yeah, I, I just look at them like, yes, mission accomplished. Like in that one, out of all the tracks in the album, I put it specifically there because I thought if there were a vinyl, that, that side would end you say, ooh, okay damn that's my hope well mike thank you for coming on the show again love it and thank you for uh, having me i love coming just talking music with you thank you for listening to champagne is also a band podcast this is mike carpenter from decadence from episode 37 reminding you to check out our latest album lost in translation released on august 11th of 2023 you can get it on our band camp at decadence.bandcamp.com remember great music is out there Go find it where you live.
looking for something fun to do? Street Fest is happening in Campus Town September 9th from 1 to 7 p.m. Enjoy free live music and dance performances, shop local vendors, and explore a global array of restaurants during Chow Down in Campus Town. Presented by JSM Living and the City of Champaign and powered by the Champaign Center Partnership. More details at ChampagneCenter.com. That's a wrap. Champagne is also a band. You almost have an NPR voice. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> studio. South Beaker. On the inside. Uh, how much more black can it get? None, none, none more. more. None more.